I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Podcast. We live in a culture that breeds forgetfulness from information overload to your smartphone camera. This forgetfulness is rarely embraced more widely than at the start of a new year. We are encouraged to forget the past and live for the future. New year, new you. The scriptures, however, speak of the need and value of remembering. Forgetfulness isn't just an inconvenience. It can lead to a crisis of identity for the apprentice of Jesus. Hey, my friends, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 77. Uh, Psalm 77 is probably about in the middle of your Bible if you're using a a, a paper one. Psalm 77. If you're new here with us, we are a group of people dedicated to following Jesus of Nazareth. What that looks like uh, is devoting ourselves to learning Jesus' way of life. Um, Because Jesus isn't just a historical figure, but present with us through God's Spirit, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And uh, this isn't just a pleasant tagline that we often say, it's a commitment to reorient our entire lives around Jesus. For those of you who have been around, you know we've been working our way through a series called Fighting the World, the Flesh, and the Devil. Um, We have one more teaching for you in that series, but tonight is a sort of standalone teaching as we come to the end of the year. Um, So go ahead and do me a favor. Um, Pull out your phone if it isn't already out um, and go into your Photos app, not the camera, but the Photos app. So do that right now. You're allowed to bring out your phone and do that. This is what I'm talking about. Okay, so once you're in the Photos app, go to Albums, and then you see at the top left corner there, kind of it says All Photos, and there's a number right there. You see mine, that's, that's mine. Mine says 863. If, uh, if you don't have an iPhone, God bless you. I have no idea how you look that up, so good luck. Maybe ask the person next to you. Um, so look at your albums, look at the total num- number of pictures you have. Obviously, I have 863, and that's spanning about two years. Um, show your number if, uh, to your neighbor if, if you're brave enough. Uh, you guys are way more enthusiastic to do that than I was expecting. So get this, uh, Patrick, our friend Patrick, who's running the sound back there. Hey, Patrick. Uh, our friend Patrick has 3,557. That's, that's spanning a seven-year time frame, though, so, uh, you know, grace to him. Josh, our friend Josh here, uh, we love Josh. Josh has 4,642 photos, also spanning seven years, but still, that's a lot of photos. Does anybody beat that, 4,000? 8,000, well, that's pretty good. 11, oh, that's good. 13, 10, 15, anybody got higher than 15? That's spanning years, but I mean, you win, you win, Vanessa, well done. Everyone give Vanessa a round of applause. That was awesome. Okay, so let's uh, refocus here. Uh, So it's incredible the ability we have to hold a snapshot of a memory in the palm of our hands. Um, We can easily recall the way somebody looks, the color of a landscape, or an important personal moment with just a few movements of our fingers. Um, It's really an incredible age that we live in. And yet, studies are showing that millennials have a worse memory than their parents, uh, which means that millennials have more senior moments than seniors do. Um, 
<laughs> in the age of information, forgetfulness is kind of a real problem. Um, we have more access to information and are, and are bombarded by more information than ever before. People today are exposed to five times more information than people 30 years ago. And that's the equivalent of roughly about 170 newspapers, each of which contain 85 pages. That's the amount of information that comes at you every single day. The memories we have on our phones in the form of photos and videos uh, aren't all that they're cracked up to be. Uh, research has shown that taking a photo of an object decreases a person's ability to remember the details of the object, which makes sense because if you're focused on making sure the lighting is good and that you get a great angle and it's in focus, then your memory is more about taking the photo of the object than the object itself. But you may say, hey, but I can remember it even better because I can look at the photo I took of it. That is true in theory, but researcher Linda Hinkle writes this. Research has suggested that the sheer volume and lack of organization of digital photos for personal memories discourages many people from accessing and reminiscing about them. In order to remember, we have to access and interact with the photos rather than just amass them. Remember uh, photo albums that weren't on your phone? Like the real physical ones um, that like a few of you were, are really into and the rest of us uh, try to nicely pretend to be into them? Um, I have the equivalent of 100 photo albums on my phone covering just over two years of my life. One photo album is a marathon of patience and attention span. No way I can look at 100. The power we have to hold memories and better remember things is only a half-truth. Ironically, it's actually making us more forgetful. And here we sit on December 30th at the end of another year with a phone full of pictures and videos documenting this last year. And we are encouraged to look ahead to this next year, to live into that slogan, new year, new you. You know, what goals will you set? How will you change? The past is the past. It's time to live for next year. And there's this kind of subtle pressure uh, to forget about the past and solely focus your attention on the future. And this impulse to look forward to a new year, especially if the previous year has been difficult, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Maybe, you know, this year will be the year you finally finish that degree, or you'll finally be in a position to afford a house, or you'll start pursuing a career that's in line with your wirings and your passions. You know, possibilities and reaching goals are really exciting. Remembering is also really important, though, and a way in which the present and the future can be shaped and impacted. The scriptures talk a ton about remembering, especially in the Old Testament. For God's people, Israel, forgetfulness isn't just an inconvenience. It can lead to an existential crisis. For us tonight, uh, I want to look at this idea of remembering and the value it can bring to us as followers of Jesus when we choose to remember our story and the story of God. So we're going to be reading Psalm 77 together in just a second. But before we do, just a helpful word about the Psalms and Hebrew poetry in general. Uh, think of the Psalms less of a textbook of information and more of like a snapshot into the human experience with the Creator God, Yahweh. It's not to say we can't learn from the Psalms. We certainly can, and hopefully we will tonight. Um, and I think we will. But unlike a textbook, the Psalms are emotional and relational. 
They reflect thoughts and feelings of people in all sorts of different seasons, good and bad. Because of this, there's a rawness to them that you might not get when you're reading a part of the Bible like uh, Romans. Also, the Psalms were essentially the prayer book and the hymnal of Israel, and then also the early church as well. This is poetry that we are invited to join in with and look to understand through shared experiences of joy and suffering and doubt and awe. So you are invited to feel what the author is speaking about. Even if right now you aren't feeling what the author is describing, there's a strong possibility that you can remember a time that you were. So with all this in mind, let's read through all of Psalm 77 together in order to see the three major themes of the, the poem, Doubt, Remember, and Story. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So there's a lot going on there. So let's take some time to understand what's happening in the psalm. It can be helpful to break down this poem into sections. So if you look at verses 1 through 9, they kind of make up the first section culminating with doubt. The second sections are verses 10 and 11, and, the, and they are the turning point of this poem, and they're focusing on remembering. And then the last section draws on God's story. So it's kind of the three themes, doubt, remember, and story. So let's start within the first section. Look down with me at the first five verses, verses 1 through 5. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. The author is painting a picture of difficulty, distress, and searching but with seemingly no response from God. He's talking about uh, being up all night, tired, and, and his mind racing. We aren't given the exact situation or thing that was troubling him, but the author does give us a window into his thinking. He goes on to say this in verse 6. 
I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? The author remembers how he used to sing about God and then asks the hard question, was it all a lie? Has God turned his back? Is he really good and loving? Is he really who he says he is? The author is doubting God. I think something we can all relate to, especially in a time and a culture where skepticism, skepticism is, is cool, but doubt is not new. And it's fascinating to me that clearly the author isn't shy about sharing his doubts. And we have them recorded for us to resonate with. And I think it's important for us to realize that the scriptures show us a God who is not scared of our doubts. So do me a favor. Um, just right now, um, would you just close your eyes? Um, now, uh, recall a time when you doubted God. Maybe it was 10 years ago or 10 months ago, or maybe you're still right now working through doubt. Maybe you've doubted that he is good or doubted that he loves you or that he cares or that he even exists. And when you have that time in your mind, think about how that made you feel. Is there any fear, any anger, anxiety, sadness? Good, go ahead and uh, open your eyes. This allows us to resonate with the poem, with doubting God. It's not just something that we're reading, it's now something that we get to interact with. The author, however, doesn't allow his doubts to overcome him. He doesn't hide from it, but acknowledges his doubt, faces it, and wrestles with it, knowing that it won't necessarily end up with unbelief. So he responds really intentionally. Verses 10 and 11 turn the entire poem. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. The author forces his mind to turn from his present predicament to the past. He remembers. And the image of God's right hand is symbolic for his power and his favor. The author is saying, I'm going to force my mind to answer my doubt by remembering a time that shows Yahweh's favor and power. And he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. That word in English, uh, remember, is the Hebrew word zakar. Can you guys say zakar? Zakar, great, good job. There's your Hebrew. Zakar does mean to bring something to mind from the past, but its intention is more than just bringing facts to mind in order to answer like a sort of trivia. Uh, to zakar is to bring to mind something from the past in order to impact your present and future feelings and actions. For instance, Moses says this to Israel as they prepare to enter the promised land in Deuteronomy. He said, you may say to yourselves, these nations are stronger than we are. How can we drive them out? But do not be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all 
Egypt. Don't be afraid. Instead, remember, or zakar. Not remembering is often tied to sin. Yahweh, explaining to Israel why they were in exile, says this in the book of Ezekiel. You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and kicking about in your blood. Israel sacrificed their children for power and favor from foreign gods because they did not zakar when Yahweh had taken care of them in their helplessness and powerlessness. And this isn't like an, oops, I forgot about Yahweh, and I accidentally sacrificed my child to the demon god Moloch. Uh, Forgetfulness seems to often lead to determined rebellion. This is deliberately choosing to neglect to zakar Yahweh and instead to put your faith and trust in the power of other gods. And what's interesting about the two examples from Deuteronomy and Ezekiel that I just gave is that often to zakar isn't to bring up abstract facts, but to remember a story. In Deuteronomy, it's to not fear because of the story of how God freed Israel from, the, from slavery and oppression to the superpower Egypt. And Yahweh and Ezekiel hints at the same story that was forgotten when they were helpless and powerless as slaves in Egypt. He wants them to remember the story of God and how he has acted and behaved in his story. And what's interesting to me is uh, modern psychology has come to realize the power of a story to help us remember, and it's illustrated well in what's referred to as the Baker-Baker paradox. So uh, the paradox has been shown by the following experiment researchers have carried out using the word Baker. Take two people and show each of them a picture of a stranger, you know, somebody that they don't know. Separately, to the first person, you tell, you tell them that the person pictured has the last name of Baker. To the second person, you tell them that the person pictured is a Baker, as in their occupation. Ask these two people later to recall the information, and the first person had quite freak, frequently forgotten that the, fact, uh, the fact that the pictured person's last name is Baker. The second person, however, was often able to recall the fact the person is a baker. Even though it's the same word, baker, it turns out that the vast majority of people will remember the person's occupation rather than the person's name. And psychologists, you know, just think this is the case because the person's last name, Baker, uh, is just an abstract fact that's not really associated with anything. It's, It's easy to forget. But if the person's occupation is a baker, It can immediately bring to mind memories of donuts and pips on a Saturday afternoon and nice French bread with pasta and delicious new season's croissants with Hannah. And that one's for me and probably not for you. But, you know, on down the list. The fact that the person's occupation is a baker is integrated into your life story. It's not abstract. It becomes personalized. It's much easier to remember. And we see this in the entirety of the scriptures. The entire Bible has a meta-narrative or an overarching story. It's not just a list of abstract facts about God or legal codes to obey. It's a story that does include laws and facts, but couched within the context of that story. So looking back at Psalm 77, the author gets it. So he decides to zakar the story of God, who he is and what he's about in order to answer doubt. Now look down at Psalm 77 with me and let's keep reading in verse 12. 
I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The author begins to draw up facts about who God is by remembering who God has demonstrated himself to be within the context of a story. That story is Israel crossing the Red Sea to freedom from Egypt. Look down at verse 16. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lighting lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. There's something interesting going on here. So, so let's just take a, a moment to, to dig deep in here. So just hang with me, okay? The language of writhing and convulsing is language pointing to fear. It's like he's saying the water shook with fear at the sight of God. And God makes a display with rain and thunder and lightning. And this is ancient Near Eastern battle language. God is going to battle against chaotic evil which is what often bodies of water signified. This is significant because the story of Israel crossing the Red Sea in the book of Exodus, um, it doesn't have rain or thunder or lightning recorded. So what's going on here? Um, What the author seems to be doing is intentionally reframing the story as a sort of apologetic or argument in favor of Yahweh. It helps to know something about a group of people called the Canaanites. They were a diverse people who lived all around the nation of Israel who worshipped the god Baal, or also pronounced Baal, who was the god of thunder, lightning, and fertility via rain. Baal was credited with defeating the evil aquatic chaos serpent Yam, thusly claiming to be the earth's ruler and most high god. The author seems to be saying... Baal is a phony god. Yahweh is the true ruler of the earth, the true god with power over creation, truly the highest god. And it may seem silly to us, but the temptation to worship and trust other gods for safety, security, and success was real and powerful. What this imagery seems to be pointing at is potentially the author not only doubting Yahweh, but wondering if Baal is the God who he should trust instead. But by remembering the story of God and how he has acted in the past, it reinforces for the author the reality reality of who Yahweh is. Look at verse 19. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Yahweh didn't just uh, defeat evil chaos, but walked with Israel through it, tending them with care like a shepherd does his sheep. Is Yahweh as good as he says he is? Is he faithful? Is he merciful? And in light of those questions, the author Zakars the story of Israel to answer these questions, remembering Abraham and his descendants, Joseph and Egypt, then slavery and oppression, and then the threat of genocide in Egypt— but then freedom from Egypt through the Red Sea, God fulfilling his, his promise to Abraham and creating a nation, Israel, a, a nation of slaves, uh, rebellious and imperfect, but led and shepherded by the highest God, Yahweh, 
and gifted with leaders like Moses and Aaron. Whatever the situation the author found himself in, he can find truth and facts in God's story. But all is not the highest God, not the one to be trusted and worshipped. Yahweh is. Look at the story. Look how good he has been. He is faithful. Zakar Yahweh and his story. For us tonight, we need to understand that forgetfulness isn't just an inconvenience when we lose our keys or a threat to a career when we can't remember as much information as somebody else. It can be a threat to our identity as humans made in the image of God, who have been brought into God's family at a high cost. This happens when we allow other stories to shape us more than the story of God. Every political camp has a story about who you are, what's most important in life, and how to live your life. You know, identity politics is really huge right now. Uh, sometimes they seem to have something that shares in common with God's story. However, I think the vast majority of the time they're in direct contradiction with it. And then we also live in a culture, cultural moment right now that says that you are a unique and extra special individual who is the sole master of your own universe, free to choose whatever will bring you the most fulfillment. And we can say that there's hints of truth in that, but it's also a petty and cheap imitation of God's story being made in his image. It's a desire to be made in God's image, but without God being around. And these are just two examples of stories that can compete with the story of God for our minds and our hearts. And while we won't go to a temple to sacrifice our firstborn to the God Baal, right? We won't. Uh, we often shape our lives, our hopes and dreams, and the way we live our lives with competing stories about what is true rather than shaping our lives by God's story. And I've seen the power of remembering often in my role at Van City. Uh, I really enjoy apologetics, which is just uh, an area of study which entails things like philosophical or cosmological arguments for the existence of God. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Uh, most people don't because it's only philosophers that like to talk about this stuff. Or there's like the his historicity of Jesus or the validity of the scriptures and so on is for helping to build a coherent foundation for belief in God, which is really good and I think really fun. However, over my time at Van City, when I sit and talk with people struggling or suffering or doubting, the vast majority of time they do not need philosophical facts or valid reasons to believe Jesus really did rise from the dead or something else from the realm of apologetics. They are most helped by remembering by recalling information already in their minds about who God is, what he has done, and what he has said. It's remembering God's story and how it intersects with their lives that is the most helpful thing. And for us tonight, looking ahead towards another year, I think taking time to remember is really important. Whether you've had a good year or a tough year or somewhere in, betwe in between, taking time to reflect on it, what God has been up to and how it fits within his story can be really impactful for the here and now and also moving forward. So my wife Hannah and I started doing this uh, years ago. 
uh, after we were married. And funnily enough, I, I can't remember why. Um, but uh, toward, uh, two people chuckled at that, yeah, the irony of this. Uh, but towards the end of every year, we have conversations about that year, where we've come from, what God has been up to, and, and like how we've grown. And, and then we talk about uh, where we think he's, like we're heading, not, um, not making predictions about the future, but looking to see where we think God is leading us, and then asking for his help in areas that we don't want to continue in. And, and there's a general guide that can be helpful for thinking through all this. It's just four steps, give or take, and feel free to use some of it or all of it if you're reflecting on 2018. The first step is to recall themes or moments from the year in order to kind of piece together the story of your year and how it's gone. The second is then to ask God's Spirit to let you know what He's been up to through it. The third is to think through how this uh, fits into the story of God. And then lastly, uh, to think through the implications of what it means for the coming year. And it's a pretty basic formula, one that Hannah and I have actually already talked through a handful of times about uh, 2018. Uh, so let me tell you all, just in part, what our, our years looked like and some of those things the conversations have produced. Um, and, and this is just to show you how this kind of guide works in practice, okay? So Hannah and I started 2018 talking about our need to go to both individual and marriage counseling, which should set up the year nicely. Um, we were grieving um, her dad's death and trying to figure out parenting and marriage and all at the same time. And we decided that we would do individual counseling first and then do marriage counseling sometime in the summer. We also accidentally decided to remodel our house in February um, because nothing helps struggling people like adding stress and pressure. Um, we started redoing our downstairs floors, and then my beautiful, creative wife started dreaming of what else we could accomplish, and the rest is history. Um, it was in February as well, after finishing the floors, that I started feeling like a heaviness that I honestly still haven't gotten completely over. Not necessarily depression, although at times I think it's been there, but a definite realization of my own limits. Um, going to seminary, having a kid, working two jobs, and then remodeling part of our house, all the while having a mixture of grief and stress and some marital tension was hard for some reason. Uh, so in April, after the school term ended, um, Hannah stopped going to counseling and I started, and, and it's been really great and helpful. Interestingly enough, by the end of summer, we still hadn't gone to marriage counseling, but we could tell our marriage was in like a way better place because of the stuff I was working through individually. Um, apparently, I was the problem. Uh, <laughs> Let me just say this on a side note. This isn't often how counseling works, works out, nor is this some, some pattern to be followed. Um, you know, through various circumstances, uh, that's how it worked out for us this last year, and Jesus has used it really effectively in our lives. Um, but I think the idea at the end of the day is to go get the help you need from a trained professional and allow Jesus to use it to work through your stuff. So the summer was improving, and the beginning of fall was nice with some vacation time, but after that, it, it was, and, and it's continued to be a tough season. Um, so Hannah's dad died last year, November, uh, so we've had a lot of grieving and then just uh, trying to adjust to family dynamics that have naturally changed. Um, a young man we knew uh, died about a month or so ago, and just feeling somewhat overwhelmed with life. And through all this, you know, our, our marriage has thrived, and we've been able to support each other in healthier ways than probably ever before. 
in our marriage. Um, our house is almost done. Praise Jesus. Um, like I said, I, I'm still going to counseling, and it's been really helpful. Um, so looking at all of this, these are the themes and moments over the last year. Piecing together a story of the year, uh, we, we then asked, God, what have you been up to this year? And so we started uh, talking together with an ear to the Spirit, and as we were talking what we felt God had been up to this year, James 1.3 came to mind, where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That word perseverance um, popped out to both of us, the idea of being faithful and enduring in the face of hardship. We both felt like growing in perseverance... Um, is something that Jesus was doing in us through this year of, uh, I can say, trials. Um, for me personally, this year has culminated in pursuing to know God as a good father, which uh, roughly translates to God being safe and secure. Um, I've made more progress in that area than at any time in my life, and I, and I think the majority of it through imaginative prayer, um, and yet my progress has been tested profoundly. Uh, my faith in God as a loving, good dad has been tested, and, and it has persevered. And so Hannah and I talked about trials and hardships and the value of learning perseverance in this season, and we asked ourselves, how does this make sense in light of God's story? And so to do this, we look to the scriptures and the story that it tells. We follow uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who guaranteed hardship for his followers. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Not because he's some sadistic God that gets pleasure out of our suffering, acting as some sort of puppet master dangling us just above the flames, but because that's just the nature of the broken world that we live in. Right after Jesus says that, though, he also says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We will have trouble, but we see from God's story that Jesus has guaranteed victory by his death and resurrection. That victory comes through in part when he brings good out of bad, like when he, when he brings perseverance from trials. Even though trouble is to be expected in this life, Hannah and I can take heart in the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. And that profound reality is breaking in through our situation as we persevere. And then finally, we ask ourselves this question, what does this mean for the coming year? Uh, for Hannah and I, it's, it's really helpful for us to have a paradigm for perseverance. Um, as I said, we felt somewhat overwhelmed by life in the last season, but we need to finish our house and, and not neglect things like keeping up on our budget because of time crunch or just feeling exhausted and to continue to communicate well and honestly with grace and love in our marriage. We want to persevere with intentionality now. This paradigm is really valuable for us um, because instead of doubting whether we've made the right life choices and need to backtrack by like quitting school or something like that, uh, we've been encouraged by Jesus to persevere. Life is hard right now, but instead of checking out and waiting for the difficulty to pass, this encouragement uh, from Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, one of Hannah's favorites, kind of calls out loudly to us. And let us run the pers uh, with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
My encouragement for you is to take time to work through these four things. Uh, reflect on themes and moments from the last year. Ask God what he's been up to and then listen to his spirit to give you answers. And when you hear something from God's spirit, ask how that lines up with God's story. And then ask the question, what does this mean for the coming year? And let me say this, don't do this alone. Um, you're certainly welcome to take time alone to work through all of this, but then talk to somebody about it, someone who is trusted. Maybe it's somebody in your community or a friend. Um, if you're married, um, in my experience, it's been really uh, good to do this together with Hannah. Um, that's up to you, but at least, you know, talk about it with your spouse afterwards since you you know, you've committed to live life together. Um, but I've, I've found that speaking words out loud that communicate what I've felt God is saying and, and forming my thoughts into something audible for somebody else to understand kind of solidifies it all. And then it invites somebody to hold you accountable to it. Now, you all know perseverance for me is really important and not allowing some legitimate difficulties in life to give me an excuse to neglect things. So if somebody in my community asks me in July if my kitchen cabinets are done yet and I say no and I start ex explaining that I'm just too tired to do it, they can say to me, hey, remember what God has spoken over you about perseverance. And I also want to encourage you guys to uh, read the scriptures this year. I know Josh has had the announcement for it. Uh, you know, we have a reading plan that will take you through the entire Bible in a year. Um, there is no better way to learn the story of God than by reading it, interacting with it, and allowing it to speak into your life. It's a commitment, but one that is immensely worthwhile, especially when it comes to being able to remember God's story. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us and find more teachings and resources at vancity.church and support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.